manager. National director will do. <laughs> Welcome, brother. The Lord bless you. Good to be back, brother. You shared with us a little bit last year, but tell yeah. us again quickly. Married, kids, hobbies, favourite things to do? Yes, to all the above. <laughs> oh, you'd like all... Oh, okay. Yes. It's going to uh, be a short sermon, people. Uh, what's today? The 18th. Oh, um, two weeks ago, uh, my wife Marlene and I, who... Marlene was here last year, but she was not able to come this year. Uh, but um, two weeks ago, we celebrated our 37th wedding wow. anniversary. So it is, a, it is certainly a testimony to her endurance uh, <laughs> as much as anything else. Um, we have five adult children. The oldest is 36 in August. The youngest is 22. How's that? Not bad. Yeah, very impressive. Um, three grandchildren, one on the way. And... Um, Coming soon uh, in July, another Crowder boy. 17th? How many? No. What date in July? Oh, I don't know. You know <laughs> if my wife was here, she'd know, but I don't have a clue. I, you know, I, I have enough trouble remembering to tie my shoes in the morning, so I'm happy for her to keep track of the important <laughs> stuff. Um, we, uh, we live in Michigan near uh, Grand Rapids, where the headquarters is, and uh, I was telling the folks yesterday that I was stunned when I arrived here on Friday and was told that this is winter. Uh, because where I live in Michigan, we are still in the kind of aftermath of winter. And at, at our house, my house, the driveway, which I have to keep clear, uh, we had over 150 inches of snow this winter. Wow. And uh, it was just... It was awful. <laughs> it's just awful. So it was, it was pretty rough winter. But uh, as far as hobbies, I'm a, I'm a very, very uh, avid, maybe rabid supporter of Liverpool Football Club in the That's English right. Premier League. Mm. And um, I like playing golf. And Got a handicap? Yeah, my swing mm. is my handicap, yeah, yeah. my swing. <laughs> so no, you don't have a handicap? Uh, it, I'm about a 12. Oh. Oh. So you're a rough golfer. Yeah. 12 is very good. Yeah. yeah. 12 is uh -huh. not so great. <laughs> 151, 150 inches, that's yeah. like three, 300 <laughs> centimeters. Well, no, 150 inches would be roughly the equivalent of... Uh, 500, five foot, five foot of snow. It's all right, I'm just trying to catch up with the old language that you're uh, using. 150, <laughs> 150 inches would be about uh, 13 feet. Of snow. It's about 13 feet. Thankfully, it didn't all come on the same day. <laughs> uh, but there was like a month where we were getting five inches a day every day. Wow. And it just was awful. And uh, of course, the roads were bad and you couldn't go anywhere. And uh, I have a little snow blower that throws the snow to clear the driveway. Next door. And yeah. it's like here. That's how big the chute is. And I got up one morning to clear the driveway, and just from overnight, the snow was that deep. So wow. it was just awful. So it's nice. Winter's nice. Yeah, winter's lovely. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, brother. Hey, thanks. That's a Appreciate you. Pleasure. Uh, and on behalf of RBC, just can't say enough about how much we appreciate uh, Sunnybank and the folks here and all the help and support we got yesterday for the conference. We had a wonderful afternoon. We really did. And uh, for the folks who were here uh, yesterday, uh, I hope you'll feel that it was time well spent. Uh, we, we just had a great afternoon studying the Bible together. What a great thing to do. 
and uh, just had a terrific time. But thank you uh, to the church and the staff for all the support and encouragement along the way. And uh, as you leave today, back in the back where uh, one of our colleagues from the Melbourne office, James Lake, is seated uh, back there, uh, we have some of our uh, literature, some, <clears throat> some teaching DVDs, uh, a variety of things back there. All of that stuff is there just for you to help yourself to, and uh, just part of our way of saying thank you uh, to the church, but also uh, to introduce you to some of our resources. So anything on the table, uh, except maybe the box that the money's in. That's the only thing you're not allowed to take. Uh, so, uh, but thanks for, thanks for letting us be a part of your, your Lord's Day today. Um, I was asked to talk about the church, which is really interesting because um, I pastored for over 20 years in three very different regions of the country uh, in the United States. Uh, one was in West Virginia, which is kind of in the South. And if you know anything about the States, and you don't have to, but it's kind of a hillbilly state, and that's where I grew up. So I'm kind of a hillbilly. Uh, and so it's kind of a really country sort of feeling place. And we moved from there after eight years to Southern California, to Los Angeles, which was a little different. Um, uh, you move from a town of 10,000 to a town of 14 million. Uh, it's, there's a, a little culture shock involved in that. And uh, in our church in West Virginia, I mean, it was, it was basically all white people, and we go to Southern California, and suddenly we're in the middle of this wonderful congregation, much like yours, that very much resembles the body of Christ. And it was just one of the most wonderful experiences of our life and ministry. And then the Lord took us to the frozen tundra of Michigan, where we've been since 1990. And, and all along the way, all of these churches had strengths, all of these churches had weaknesses, all of these churches had problems. All of these churches had reasons for celebration. Every church is like that. Um, somebody said, if you're looking for the perfect church, if you find it, don't join it, because the minute you do, it won't be perfect anymore. Uh, because church is just church. It's just a bunch of broken people who found grace in Christ. That's all it is. There's nothing particularly remarkable about any of us as followers of Christ except that we have a remarkable Savior. And that's what makes the church what it is. And so as I was thinking about what to say about the church this morning, I thought, well, if you asked people in whatever culture they're from and whatever place they're from, what makes a great church? You'd probably get a lot of different answers. Some people would say a great church is defined by the number of people who attend, and obviously they're thinking in terms of, of the, the so-called mega churches where they'll have twenty or 30,000 people in attendance on a Sunday morning, but I find it difficult to believe that that's the measure of a great church or an ideal church because certainly Jesus' congregation was 12 and one of them bailed. So, you know, by that standard, Jesus was a failure, and I suspect he was not a failure. Some people would say that a great church is marked out by its programs and, and the greatness of those programs being determined by which ones they're the most interested in. So if you really like music, maybe a great church is the one that has a great music program. If you have kids, maybe a great church is one that has great youth programs and opportunities. Or maybe if you like studying the scriptures, maybe a great church is a church where you have opportunity for Bible study or all those different things. And yet, even as you talk about all those things, those might be great things that are happening through the life of the church, but that doesn't really constitute 
a great church. Some might say that it's the values of that church that make it great. Or the spirit of that church that make it great. But I'd like to take you to maybe a place that's a little unexpected, and it's not unexpected because you don't know we're going there, because I know it's printed in the bulletin. But, I mean, when we think about churches in the Bible, and we think about great churches in the Bible, we think of the great letters that Paul wrote, and we usually will fixate on, like, Romans, where Paul mapped out his great theological treatise on the doctrine of grace and salvation. Or maybe we think of Ephesians, where Paul gives us all this tremendous information about Christ and His body, the church. Or maybe we would think of Philippians, the great church where Paul wrote to them and talked to them about joy. But for most of us, if you said, what would be a church in the Bible that would really be described as an ideal church very few of us would immediately gravitate to the church at Thessalonica. <laughs> That's just not something that would pop up on our radar, radar automatically. And yet here it is. 1 Thessalonians 1, I think, gives us some characteristics of an ideal church or a church that really reflects the Savior in a way that honors and pleases Him. What are the characteristics of an ideal church? Well, you can find certain characteristics, I'm sure, in the letter to the Philippians or to the letter to the Romans or to the letter to the Colossians or, or to any of these places. But there's something to me very instructive about 1 Thessalonians. It, it's an interesting church. If you know any of the background, and I'm sure some of you do, it was founded by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17. In fact, if you'll remember... Uh, in just the previous chapters, Paul has been going through Asia Minor on a missionary trip. He, he's forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak as he moves his way from east to west on what today would be modern-day Turkey. He's not allowed to speak, and, and I just have to tell you right up front that for a preacher, there's probably nothing worse than that. Uh, he's not allowed to speak. And he makes his way all the way to the western coast of, of modern-day Turkey or ancient Asia Minor, and he receives what has become known as the Macedonian vision. A man from Macedonia across the strait, across the water, across the sea, into what is today modern-day Greece. And this man says to him, come over into Macedonia and help us. Paul is obedient to that heavenly vision, as he would later say. And as he goes over, and as he arrives in Philippi, the first European church is planted. And then he moves from there in Acts 17 to Thessalonica. Now, Paul's pattern for doing missions work or, or church planting or however you want to describe whatever it was he was doing, Paul's pattern was very simple. He would go to the local Jewish synagogue where they had familiarity with the Old Testament Scriptures, familiarity with the promise of a coming Messiah, familiarity with the things of the true and living God, he would go to that synagogue and he would preach Jesus. And usually within about 20 minutes, they would kick him out. And two or three people would go with him and they would be the beginnings of a church in that community. 
And that's what he does in Thessalonica as well, only when he comes to Thessalonica, he actually gets three goes at him in the synagogue. He's three weeks in the synagogue before they finally kick him out. But when they do kick him out, they're very serious about it, and he actually ends up leaving town. So he has three weeks, three weeks only in Thessalonica to preach Christ, to see people come to the Savior, and to begin the foundation of a church that he ends up writing to in 1 Thessalonians 1. Now, you think about Ephesus. Paul was at Ephesus for three years. He's in Thessalonica for three weeks. And yet, the message of Christ took such solid root in the hearts of the people that as we begin to see him write to this church, we hear from heart, the heart of Paul not only warmth, not only affection, not only appreciation for them, but also we find in him recognition of things in the hearts of the people of this church that mark them out as special. And it really is kind of captured in, in 1 Thessalonians 1, and we won't look at all of it, but notice in verses 5, 6, and 7, just as we kind of move our way toward where we want to focus, he says in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your namesake. So he said, when we came to you and we brought the message of Christ, it wasn't just us being bold and dramatic and powerful in our speech. No, the Holy Spirit was there, and the Holy Spirit was at work, and you're the result of that. You're evidence of that. And he said in verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, Having, and this is a really odd statement, having received the word in much tribulation and with joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, those things seem to be polar opposites, don't they? Because on the one hand, they were receiving the word in much tribulation, hardship, difficulty, pain, suffering, anguish, much tribulation, and in the joy of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> We don't think of joy and tribulation riding along together. And yet Paul says, as they were enduring much tribulation, they were also experiencing great joy. And this begins to tip his hand as to where he's going, as to what characterizes them as truly a church worth taking note of. And then he says, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, Macedonia being the northern part of ancient Greece, Achaia being the southern part of ancient Greece. So not only did they embrace the gospel, not only did they experience salvation through Jesus Christ, but the word of that was going out. What was happening in Thessalonica was making waves throughout the land. And the reason it was making waves was because of, I think, three things three things that mark them out as being a church worth taking note of. And they're found in verses 8 through 10, and this is really where we want to focus. He says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, 
whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, on the face of it, that may not sound like all that much to get worked up about. But I think as we unpack these three verses for just a few minutes, it's going to show us the kinds of things that Paul was looking for. As Paul hears about what God's doing in Thessalonica, as Paul considers what's going on in the church at Thessalonica, there are some some tent pegs that he's looking for, some tent pegs that can hold this thing up to make this thing strong, to enable it to stand. And as he looks for these tent pegs, he is celebrating the fact that things that maybe to the, to the casual observer would have no significance whatsoever had great significance to Paul. The first one of those things that he sees as a tent peg is the tent peg of witness. The tent peg of witness. This was not a congregation that was embracing the treasures of the grace of God and keeping them for themselves. This was a group that was taking that message and sharing it everywhere they went. They were a group who was committed to the very things that have been talked about this morning, the very things that are going on in Malawi, the very things that are going on through your mission partners, the very things that are going on through our RBC offices and other ministries and churches around the world. The church of Jesus Christ was intended to be a missional institution. It was intended to be a missional organization. And most of all, it was intended to be a missional organism where the life that it carries is spread everywhere it goes. And that's exactly what Paul recognizes is taking place. From that little church that he was only with for three weeks, he says, here's what's happening. The word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. And notice, he, he gives them kind of a Greek equivalent of what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. Remember what Jesus said in Acts 1.8? He says, for you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem. And then he moves it out. Judea, and then he moves it out Samaria, and then he moves it out to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, this is kind of the Greek equivalent of that. He said, it started in Macedonia, where Thessalonica was, and it spread to Achaia, the other half of Greece, but then it's gone forth in every place. He said, every place I go, I don't have to say a word. All I have to do is say, have you heard of Thessalonica? Oh, yeah. Have you heard what's going on there? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. He said, I don't have to say anything because the witness that you are bearing to the saving grace and love of Jesus Christ is going everywhere. It's changing lives everywhere. It's making a difference everywhere. And it's starting right there with you because you have a message. And you're not afraid to share it. They were bearing witness, and their witness was reaching to every place. Now, it's interesting. When you talk about being a witness, we have kind of a religious category of that, and then we have a legal category of that. When I was in the 10th grade, which would have meant I was 15, so that was probably 143 years ago, uh, I was... was, on the street in my little hometown in West Virginia, and uh, I was standing there drinking a bottle of Pepsi, and um, 
I heard a rumble coming down Kanawha Terrace, which was kind of the main drag in town, and it had a 35-mile-an-hour speed limit, which I don't know what that would be, probably 50 kilometers an hour, uh, something close to that. And I heard a car coming, and it was a car, and it was packed with teenagers uh, from the high school that I went to. And they came flying down that road, and, and seriously, they had to be doing 80 miles an hour on this 35-mile-an-hour road. And they ran a red light, and, and my eyes just followed them down the road. And as my eyes followed them down the road, one block down from the stoplight they ran was a blind corner. And a car pulled out, and they collided at 80 miles an hour. And I ran down there. I don't know what I thought I was going to be able to do, but I thought somebody had to do something. And I ran down there, and two people were killed. Seven were injured, several of them critically. Now, as it turned out, I was the only witness of that event. So here you got a 15-year-old kid. And not only am I seeing dead people for the first time, which was traumatic enough. But I spent the next few months with lawyers and insurance companies giving depositions, bearing witness to what I'd seen. Now, what's really interesting is never during all that time of bearing witness, never during any of that time did any lawyer ask me the question, what do you think was the horsepower of that engine of that car? What do you think the braking power would have been? What do you think the braking distance should have been? What do you think the physics were that took place when those two cars collided? Nobody asked me that stuff. You know what they asked me? What did you see, and how do you feel about it? And what I'd like to suggest to you is sometimes we make this matter of witness a lot more complicated than it needs to be. We feel like we're not equipped to witness unless we can explain the hypostatic union and we understand the kenosis theory of Philippians chapter 2. And oh, by the way, we've, we've reconciled sovereignty and free will. Okay, now I'm set. I'll go out and witness now. You know what? Normal people don't care about that stuff. You know what they care about? They care about where can I find hope? How can I know love? I'm burdened with guilt where can I find relief? That's what they want to know. And you know what they want you to do? They want you to tell them what you found and how it felt. <laughs> and that's what was happening in this church at Thessalonica. The word of the Lord was sounding forth from them in the most profound witness so that everywhere Paul went, all he had to do was say Thessalonica and everybody knew what he was talking about. Because the impact of the gospel on their lives was impacting their world. Church is supposed to be missional. And the tent peg of witness was a very strong and profound tent peg that Paul saw as great. As great. Because from their little community, the world was being impacted through witness. Okay? So, the word of the Lord has sounded from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. So it starts with this witness component. Then he adds a second tent beg. 
verse 9, he says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. You turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Now, there are several elements of this, but, but before we kind of look at the elements, what I think this tent peg represents is the tent peg of devotion. Devotion. Their hearts had been so utterly transformed that not only were their hearts changed, their lives were changed. Not only were their lives changed, their values were changed. Not only were their values changed, their actions were changed. Their lives were being dramatically altered because of the presence of Christ in their lives. And that all kind of gets wrapped up and captured in this idea you turned to God from idols. They had lived in a polytheistic culture. They had lived in a culture where they had the multiple Greek gods. And when the Roman Empire came in, they had imported their Roman gods. And they had all this pantheon of gods and their idols and the worship and the temples and the temple prostitutes and all the stuff that went with it. Religion in Greece was very secular, but it was also all-consuming. And so to turn from all of that to something else was a dramatic turn. It was a turn that cost you something. It was a turn that demanded something. And it was a turn that displayed a devotion of heart to a true and living God that has completely wiped away any thought of past idols. Now, the contrast that he makes here is really significant because he says, you turned from idols to serve a living and true God. The idols were dead, not alive things. The God they have embraced is a true and living person. So, the, the, the difference between what they used to have and what they now have couldn't be more dramatic because as the Bible makes it clear over and over again, those idols of stone and wood and whatever, I mean, those aren't, those aren't powerful enough for what we need to face in this life. I mean, as we go through life, life is too hard to put your trust in a hunk of rock. Life is too demanding. Life is too difficult. Life is too painful to think somehow that piece of rock is going to help me out in my time of need. It's dead. It is not alive. In order to survive and thrive and live in a world like this that is fundamentally broken to its core, we need a God who is alive. And we need a God whose life can transform our lives. And that is the God that they were now devoted to. They had turned from idols to serve a living and true God. It's interesting, a few years ago I was in um, Togo, West Africa, and I was uh, on my way to, to do some teaching at a Bible institute there, and we were driving past this village, and all the villages, I, I mean, all the, this village, it looked like kind of what you would see in National Geographic or whatever magazines you have like that that kind of go to all these remote places around the world. I mean, it was thatched huts, and they were kind of in a circle, and in the middle was another thatched hut. And as we were driving past, the missionary who was hosting me there said, hmm, this village must have had a bad year. 
And I said, well, what would make you say that? And he said, well, you see that hut in the middle of all the other huts? I said, yeah. He said, you see how the roof of that hut's collapsed? I said, yeah. He said, that's the God hut. And they won't fix his house for him because they're mad at him because they've had a bad year. And under that broken down roof, you could see a big pile of mud, and that was their God. And the very fact of the disrepair of the roof of that hut was evidence that that God was not sufficient for what they needed. That God was not adequate for what they needed. What they needed was a God worth living for and a God worth dying for because he was great enough that he could handle all that stuff. One of the times that I was teaching in Russia, in Moscow, I was, I was there teaching at a, a Bible school there for pastors. And I got up to, to the classroom to teach my afternoon class at 3 o'clock, and, and I noticed that the vice president of the Baptist Union was talking to my students, and my translator was back in the back, and I asked her, I said, uh, Svetlana, what, what's going on? I didn't know there was going to be a meeting. She said, well, he's just talking to them. And I said, well, what's he saying? And she said, well, what he's saying is that we've only had freedom of religion in Russia for four years, and today a bill has been introduced in the lower house of parliament that would outlaw the evangelical church in Russia. And I said, well, what's he telling them? She said, he's telling them, we did this for 70 years. We know how. If we have to, we can do it again. <laughs> and I said, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? After only four years of freedom, the church could be driven underground again. Your lives could be at risk for naming the name of Christ again. And he's that casual about it. She said, well, believe me, he's not casual about it. But you just got to understand we know what this is, and it's okay, because Christ's that important to us. And in that moment, I had to do some self-inventory and figure out if Christ was that important to me. The heart of devotion that finds in Christ someone worth living for and someone worth dying for that causes you to turn away and turn to. That heart of devotion becomes a tent peg that can anchor a congregation in the grace of God and His purposes. So they had a tent peg of witness and mission and they had a tent peg of devotion and commitment. And then they had another one. And this is maybe my favorite one. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You know what the third tent peg is? It's hope. It's hope. <laughs> See, here's the thing. In Ephesians 2, verse 12, Paul makes hope the great dividing line between those who know Christ and those who don't. He describes those who do not know Christ as having no hope and without God in the world. And see, those two things go together. If you don't have God, you have no hope. But if you have God, 
you can have hope. And, and, and the reason I think this is so important, they're going through whatever it is they're going through, but while they're going through it, they have one eye to the heavens. They have one eye to the coming of Christ. They're looking. They're waiting. They're anticipating. They're expectant that they have a Savior who promised in my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you can be also. See, it was all about hope. It was all about anticipation. It was all about waiting for his son from heaven. And suddenly that hope lifts us. See, see, see we live in a world where the, the idea of hope has been dramatically devalued. I mean, hope, the word hope has, has become little more than the equivalent of wishes and dreams. You know? It's going it's gonna to be nice tomorrow? Well, I hope so. Well, that did a whole lot of good. I mean, that accomplished how much? Zero. Zip. Zilch. Hope is not happy thoughts. Hope is not the power of positive thinking. Hope is not, well, you know, I'm going to cross my fingers and, and, and wish but that's kind of the way hope has become understood in, in the modern world today. It's a little more than, than what Dusty Springfield sang about in the 1960s, wishing and hoping. But that's not biblical hope. You know what biblical hope is? Biblical hope is expectant confidence. It is confidence. We live with hope. We have hope. We possess hope. Why? Because we know the God of hope. Through his son Jesus. I have a friend who likes to say, to the non Christian, hope is a verb, but to the Christian, hope is a noun. To the non Christian, hope is something you do. You grit your teeth, you hold on tight. For the Christian, hope is something you have, it's something you possess, and in some ways, something that possesses you. Because you have confidence. In Him. You have trust in Him. You have dependence upon Him. And He is the one who does all things well. And so while everything's going on in this life and we're reaching out in witness, and while in the middle of this transformational process that God's doing in our lives, we're living lives where our hearts are growing more and more and more devoted to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. While all that's going on, we have one eye to the heavens waiting for his son, the one who brings the ultimate and final rescue to our weary hearts. <laughs> you know, I've got to tell you, when I was a young Christian, I came to Christ um, at age 21, and it was during a time where the big faddish thing was Bible prophecy. And everywhere you went, Bible prophecy this and Bible prophecy this. And I kept hearing all these people talking about the rapture and Jesus coming and taking us away. And I was sitting there thinking, you know what? 
I'm not quite sure I'm ready to go. I kind of like it here. You know, I enjoy, I, I've got, I'm blessed. But you live life for a while. And the burdens of life wear you down. And of all people on the planet, in those most difficult of times, we have the privilege of looking up and knowing that rescue could come at any moment. <laughs> and that's really good. See, here's the thing. When the church of Jesus Christ represents him to this world, we have a story to tell, don't we? And that's witness. And we have lives to live, don't we? And that's devotion. But you know what else we have? We have hope. And in a world that is utterly and completely and barrenly hopeless, when they see someone who has hope, real hope, at first they think you're really weird. They think, well, you, just, you know, Rudyard Kipling if you can keep your head when all around you are losing theirs and blame it on you, you probably don't understand the situation. Now, Rudyard Kipling didn't write that last part. But. If you can have hope in the midst of this world, at first they're going to think you're strange, and then you know what's going to happen? They're going to want to, what, want to know what it is you've got that they don't. And the answer is Jesus. It's not about me. I'm just as messed up as you are. I've got just as many problems as you are. You know what the difference is? I have hope. I have hope because I have a Savior. And He's promised He's coming to get me. <laughs> it might not be today, but it's coming. And I can't wait. You want to know what makes a great church? It's not being able to tick all the boxes of having passed all the classes, of having figured out all the doctrines. Having got, I mean, that stuff's important, and I'm not trying to minimize it. But to Paul, when he looked at Thessalonica, he saw witness that was making a difference, and he saw lives filled with devotion to Christ, and he saw hope. And I promise you, if those three elements can become something of the defining characteristics of Sunnybank. You want to know what happens? The word of the Lord sounds forth from Brisbane to Queensland and to every place because God's doing something here. And I don't know about you, but I don't go to church for business as usual. I want to be where God's at work. And I want to see him do something great. Maybe right here. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something? When we had that meeting in Moscow that day, and um, I listened to all the stuff that that the vice president of the Baptist Union was saying to my students, I knew I couldn't teach the class that I had planned because I needed to try and understand what was going on with that thing. And so when he left and I went up to the front with my translator, I said, 
Can we talk about this a little bit? Well, a little bit ended up being three hours. And they told me what it was like under communism. One of my students spent 25 years in a labor camp for preaching Christ. I mean, for them, faith was not something you unwrap on Sunday morning and then pack away for the rest of the week. For them, it was life. And it was death. And we talked about all this stuff, and they told us about their relatives and their loved ones and their friends and their brothers and sisters in Christ who had died for Christ under communism. And I said, you're ready to do that again? They said, well, we're not happy about it. But if we do, we do. After class was over, one of my students, a guy named Peter Zhurenkov, came to me, and he dragged my translator with him and he made the universal sign for translate what I'm going to say. He went like that. <laughs> and uh, he said, um, thank you for loving us. And thank you for being concerned about us. But don't worry about us. He said, we've learned that it's not enough for us to preach the gospel. And it's not enough for us to live the gospel. Peter said, it's necessary that we suffer for the gospel. And I thought, man, if I could bottle that and take it home to my church in Michigan, that passion for Christ, that devotion for the Savior, that commitment to witness, man, what a different place we would be. Because that's what it is. It's not about us. It is about Jesus. Where it becomes about us is how do we represent him to a world that needs him. And as people drive past this place and as they see you come and go, the question we have to ask ourselves is are we on mission? Are we on mission? Are we living lives as fully devoted followers of Christ, being transformed by His Spirit? And do we have a hope that transcends whatever this world wants to throw at us? And if so, this is going to be a church that I believe God can use to make a massive difference here in Queensland, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your Son. Thank you for the privilege of relationship with you. Thank you that we can call you Father and know that you call us your children. What a marvelous privilege. And Father, I just pray for my brothers and sisters here. And I pray that the love that they clearly have for one another, the love that they clearly have for you would move beyond this place so that lives and communities and a world would be touched with the message of the cross. Give them grace. Set them afire with hope that the difference you've made would be clearly seen by a hopeless world. We pray in Jesus' name.